This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cammy here. Today's podcast is a chat with Kareem Tebsch, who directed the documentary Mucho Mucho More, which I honestly couldn't love. Mucho Mucho More. It's so fucking good. It's on Netflix. Really love this conversation with Kareem. Also, I'm speaking to you from the past, but uh, when you're listening to this, I will have just recorded, uh, not recorded, I will have just taught my first stand-up class uh, to benefit Dynasty Typewriter. And so I'm teaching it at Dynasty Typewriter, the venue I usually perform at here in L.A., but you can join from anywhere in the world. It's at su- it's Sundays at 2 p.m. Pacific. And information is at dynastytypewriter.com. Also, if you missed the first class, I'm doing it four Sundays. You can pay just for a particular Sunday. So you're not paying for the whole class. You can just join us. And let's keep a live venue alive. Bye-bye. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Kareem Tapsh, and I am a filmmaker. Yes, and I had the like actual privilege. I really loved your I really loved your most I love your most recent film. Um I I love mucho mucho more. Mucho mucho more. Just mucho mucho more. Yeah, just just the two. Because sometimes it is said with mucho, 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 many, many, many muchos. Um, yeah. How many muchos film. could he squeeze yeah. in? Yeah. It's, yes. It's, mucho, mucho more, um, which folks can watch on Netflix, um, is really beautiful. And I'm wondering if you could give us like a real quick sort of overview or synopsis of the film. Yeah. So mucho, mucho more, uh, The Legend of Walter Mercado chronicles uh, are queer, gender non-conforming, Latino superhero, Walter Mercado, who for uh, over 30 uh, years was on um, Spanish language TV with his astrological predictions. Every day he was required viewing um, across generations um, until one day he disappeared. So our film um, kind of chronicles his unlikely rise to the top and uh, finds him in the present day and tell, explains kind of why he went missing. And I'm so curious as to where the idea for this film came from, like how this came to be. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think for a couple of different reasons. Uh, I had finished, um, I was just finishing my previous doc, which is called The Last Resort. And I was like thinking, like, what's coming next? And uh, I was in New York, and I was meeting um, a new friend, Alex Fumero, a mutual friend that said, "You guys will get along." Should... Do, do you know Alex? I, I do. I've known I've known Alex for years. Yeah, and emailed to say that I loved the film. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome! Alex is one of my favorite people. Um, but Alex. Alex and I we were put together. Uh, like you guys should know each other. You're both from Miami. You have a uh, similar sensibility, and. Um, and we were just kind of catching up about Miami stuff. And he's like, what are you working on? What are you doing next? And I was like, I'm actually going to Walter Mercado's estate sale in Miami. He's selling his apartment. I want to go and like nab myself a cape or something. Um, and uh, and Alex is like, oh, if there's ever somebody I would could do a, a project about, Walter Mercado's it. And I'm like, well, that's actually the other reason why I'm going. I want to get a cape, but I also want to try to make connection with Walter and his family and tell his story. And he's like, look, I'm all in. I'm down to help you out any way I can produce it, whatnot. So I went to the sale. I met Walter's family. Um, I gave them the the elevator pitch. I went back like two days later. That's when you get the real good deals at the end of the sale. Um, and I revised my pitch. And there, and uh, I met Walter's niece, Danette. And she's like, listen, I think uh, Walter may be open to it. Let me connect with him and my sisters. And she gave me her email address. And then uh, Alex and I were going to have a follow-up conversation. And um, half an hour, it was going to be like our first production call. And then half an hour before that call, 
uh, Christina Costantini, another filmmaker, a friend of Alex, had worked together at uh, Fusion, called them and said, I hear you're obsessed with Walter Mercado. I want to make a movie about him. Uh, and Alex says, you're not going to believe this. I'm already making a movie about him. I had my first call in half an hour with another director, but I think you guys would get along. And, uh, and so it was like an arranged marriage, like half an hour. You know, I got a text with you joined wow. this call and I'm like, yeah. And, uh, 45 minute phone conversation, Christina and I never having met in person. Uh, we agreed to co-direct and make the movie. And I can't even imagine co-directing a doc seems specifically intimate, right? Because as a director of a documentary, I mean, I suppose this is also true for like a different film, but specifically with a documentary, I think the point would, I would imagine that it's about the subject feeling comfortable with you, like that that is maybe the most important thing so that you can sort of fade into the background and catch what's really going on, you know, as if the camera wasn't there. So how does that work if there's, if there's two of you? Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing is, is that both Christina and I had uh, only ever worked as co-directors before. Oh. We had both previously co-directed documentaries <laughs> with right. other people. Christina had a, uh, a long and has a long uh, creative partnership with Darren Foster. They made a wonderful film called Science Fair, which won the top prizes at Sundance. I totally recommend it's on Disney Plus. Um, and I had my previous my first feature length was co-directed with um, uh, my one of my collaborators, Dennis Scholl. So we both had kind of been to that process. But what made this a little different is that we were like, dating while getting married at the same time like we didn't know each other yeah from anywhere you know we actually met in person for the first time the night before we met walter for the first wow. time so um i think that there's you know there's challenges with that because you're getting to know one another's style and sensibility and i think that we can't you know we come at things from a different perspective and kind of like different strengths you know uh christina is an investigative journalist by trade and um and lo loves to shoot verite in particular i worked a lot with uh more formal sit-down interviews and archival um and i think that you know that combination really uh worked well together um and you know there's obviously there's like challenges and you you're getting to know someone and making creative decisions and it's funny we would uh we always say it's like you know we we definitely argued but we only argued about the really small things in retrospect all of the large decisions we were on the same page um and uh and so that made you know that made for a really great collaboration and i think we we're also able to kind of use our own our own our own relationships with walter in different ways um i mean i'm kind of you know i'm a, a 40 year old going on 86 so that really worked really well with walter all of our like references were similar and all the old movie um <laughs> uh, and uh, and my Spanish is probably the most fluent of everyone, so that helped. And then I think the fact that Christina um, was came from a little more uh, of a journalistic background and was able to push mm -hmm. through, um, particularly with the verite and follow and be that fly in the wall, that was really helpful. So it kind of it, it was very complimentary at the end of the day. And and you getting a chance to meet and work with Walter and your sort of his personal influence on you. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Like you're, you're becoming aware of him when you're a kid. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is that for the three of us in this project for Alex, Christina and I, we had a very similar experience that uh, I think tons of, of people our age um, had, you know, I, I don't remember a time when Walter Mercado wasn't in my universe. Or maybe when I wasn't in his, I should say, because I feel like he it's his universe and we were all borrowing <laughs> space in it. Um, I just remember, you know, it was, you know, 545 every afternoon. And uh, there was a news magazine called Primer Impacto. Um, just think of like Latino hard copy. And uh, at the end of, uh, of Primer Impacto, Walter always had a segment where he, uh, he gave his astrological predictions. And it was like, you know, that was the, the, the moment of the day when like my abuela would, we would be gathered in front of the TV, shushed uh, under penalty of a flip-flop upside the head. And we had to pay attention <laughs> to every word Walter said. And it was really, first of all, the, the ability for anybody in a Latino household 
to shut your entire family up. Like that says a lot, <laughs> particularly if they're on television, like that in the room, you're like, wow. Um, and we all just had to gather and be quiet. And, you know, I think that as, as a, as a kid, you're just like, who the hell is this? You know, um, I, I didn't, are, are they a man? Are they a woman? Are they from earth? Um, right. And, and as I kind of, you know, as I, as I got older, I just realized that, you know, this was, Walter was unlike anyone I had ever experienced. Um, and when I kind of started like, you know, realizing that I was different, I mean, I don't think I knew the word gay or queer at the point, but realizing that I wasn't like every, every, uh, every boy around, um, I, I sensed this sense of like, I'm different in the same way Walter is different. Uh, I like to say that, you know, Walter looked the way I felt and, mm. um, and here he was glamorous, otherworldly, seemingly very successful, uh, but most important, beloved, beloved by my family, beloved by the world. So if he could be so successful, so happy, so loved by everyone and by my family, being as different as he was, maybe I could be loved being as different yeah. as I was. And it was yeah. incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. I, I think mean, in a way that I didn't understand then, and I do now, I do more now. Oh, well, I really want to talk more about that. Um, but I think that that's really clear. What you just, you know, described is, is what's really clear in the film. I will, I remember, you know, um, I remember, like, I had seen his face before, you know, I remember vaguely um, him from my youth, but like, you know, I grew up in a, an Italian American household. So, um, that was not the channel that, that our television was turned to. Um, but one thing that I thought was super interesting, like just from what you just described even too. So the idea that a like news program would end in, and, and it's not just the topic that it's astrology, but the, the specifics of anybody who is listening who like doesn't know who we're talking about should now look up a photograph of Walter Mercado because yeah. I think that it's not just that like astrology um was worked into news programming the same way that I think Anderson Cooper in the film makes the um comparison to like the weather person um it's also that that, that this person is in the style that Outside of Walter, like I really only think of applying to Liberace and Siegfried and Roy, like they're which all were which are also all not necessarily um a hundred percent contemporaries, but which have overlapping time frames and all exist in this special place in culture where um older women specifically could love them, and there is not a an ascribed meaning to what they're wearing. Like, uh, you know, when, when a couple of years ago, everything was coming out, that was all, like a series of Liberace focused movies that were talking so much about how, like, for some reason that person was still like a, like a, like a dream boat, like a, like a, <laughs> for some reason, none of, for some reason, none of it meant anything. And I, I think of Siegfried and Roy as also having that same, thing where they're like you know caressing each other's heads and there's a tiger and none of that has any larger cultural context um and i'm curious because i didn't grow up with as much awareness of walter is that sort of the vibe where like it's like there's just an acceptance of what's going on and there is no contextualizing there's no questioning there's no like i wonder if this means this like in your household is that what it felt like yeah, I would say in my household in particular, yes, I would say that that's exactly what it felt like. It's Walter was Walter. And I would say that, you know, my impression from the culture at large was that it was also very similar. I mean, you know, as we talk about in the film and, and as Walter and Willie mentioned, of course, there was always people who said homophobic things and, and mocked him and parodied him. But I think largely um, he was just kind of accepted as he was. And I think that part of that was that kind of magical vibe. Like he was, oh, you know, if you contextualize when he comes on TV, you know, his show launches in August of 1969 in Puerto Rico. And here he is on television talking about like all these esoteric topics, like 
astrology and world religion and spirituality and the stars. And I mean, like he was talking about things that nobody was talking about. And he was looking like no one you've ever seen. So there's this kind of otherworldliness to him mm-hmm. that it, in an essence, you're like, well, of course he looks like that. He's not he's not from this, you know, astral plane. He's from somewhere else. And I think that that he certainly got a, a pass culturally because of that. And because, you know, he was mostly talking positive stuff. I mean, you know, we, we really mm-hmm. describe Walter like the first motivational speaker in, in Latin America and in Latino society. And so I think that because of all of those things kind of came together and folks were given a, um, folks were giving him a pass to not question that a lot. You know, a lot of that imagery also kind of harkened to these like classic beauty images. Like of you know, if you think of like movies you saw in like the 30s or 40s or, or art, and it's like the young prince and tights. And then, and we would be today, you'd be like, uh, what is he going? Is he doing a drag show? I mean, you're, you'd really today ascribe these kind of queer sensibilities to that imagery. But back, you know, in, in kind of the youth of the, uh, or the, um, the times that predated a lot of our grandparents, that was also just kind of what quote unquote fancy men looked like. So I think yeah, that kind right, of all exactly. came together. You know, it all came together to give him. Um, a little bit of a um, little bit of coverage, I think, from um, uh, from society's judgment. And that, I mean, it's beautiful. You know, I, f- I found him to be like such a likable person, and so there's not there's no part of this that's like trying to rewrite his life as um as anything less than like a series of great choices. But I also think that it's there is a certain sadness or like melancholy that I feel as a queer person thinking about what you're talking about, you know, that like we are more acceptable essentially as, you know, sorcerers or like, um, that we're more, that we are more acceptable as the jester, um, than as somebody to be taken seriously. And I know that people weren't necessarily being encouraged to laugh at, um, Walter's predictions or Walter's vibe. Um, but I do think there's a part of it that's that's almost like a tongue-in-cheek or winking, you know, nature that, that like, as a queer person, it's I still feel that so much, you know, for myself. And there's a, there's a part, there's, like, a just a rim of sadness around, like, all the beauty that's in that. Totally. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's something that lots of people who are living either in marginalized communities or still to one extent or another in the fringes of society, you have to be exceptional in order to be accepted. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I totally, I totally get what you're saying. And I, and I certainly can feel that often too. And, um, and I think there's a, a great deal of sadness about that. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I think about how when you're when you are Walter Mercado coming in, in in a society that's so machista and homophobic and Catholic and conservative Latino culture could be, particularly in the 70s and 80s, um, how incredibly um, inspirational and groundbreaking he was able. I mean, to be for so many people. Uh, Cause I think you're right. There is a sense of like, yes, a little bit of a jester um, that we don't necessarily always take seriously. Um, But in kind of coming on television every day and like being who he was, being his authentic self, that's so opened doors and paths for so many people who came um, after him. And it's just like my experience of seeing him, like that allowed me to feel like, okay, you know, maybe I'm not that different, right? I'm like, I, 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 I'm not going to be rocking a robe. I'm not going to be able to pull that off. But here he's different and he's successful and he's loved and you can be too. Um, and you don't yeah. have to be the magician. You don't have to be um, necessarily exceptional. You just have to kind of um, be yourself. Right. I mean, I some of what you're saying, I also still see echoed in something like a pride parade where it's like the fact that there's like a speedo clad um, or like breasts out person marching in the dike march or whatever it is like that that sort of creates like I think I think so often um, in the straight world that's interpreted as like us thinking this is 
normative. Like this is our everyday life. But I, I think in the queer world, we still operate that way because that much freedom on like that particular day of the year sort of creates a space where then for the rest of the days we can operate, um, I think, without that much flamboyance um, because we've kind of created coverage for ourselves, which is which is part of it too. Like where it's like, well, I'm not currently doing vodka shots on a float. I'm like going to work. So I, I think there's there's some part of that that, that we use um, very effectively to create safety for ourselves as queer people. I also yeah. think that something that is so interesting to me, so like growing up Catholic, but white people Catholic, it is, white people Catholic is so different than Latinx Catholic. Like, it's like not even, it's, they're so different. And I think part of that is because like some way, some, somewhere back in my family history, um, I was not the, I was the colonizer, like somewhere back in my family history, um, I'm Italian. I'm from this place. I'm like part of a different version of this thing. And if you're from a culture that where Catholicism was brought and then, you know, the best spot in town, whatever, whatever emblem was on that was like knocked to the ground and then replaced by a cross, you know, whatever indigenous person you know, that literally, it's not even just that we like came and took, it's not even just that Catholics came and took uh, land, but literally took the sacred places and reformatted them. That, that, that's, that things were already there, that then were like inextric- inextricably linked. There's no getting it, it out because it's woven together. Um, and I think about that and like, for instance, astrology just not just not a part of the Catholicism that I grew up in. Sure. Um, and, uh, and I'm curious about that, like, like for your, your own personal experience of growing up, uh, because for me, finding out that I was realizing I was queer and then growing up Catholic, Catholicism had nothing to do with sexuality. I mean, even heterosexuality. It's like, yeah. we don't have it. We don't have sexuality. Yeah. Like, don't even mention it. No sex ed. We have no... Um, yeah, everything's just very like buttoned up. It's a buttoned up version of Catholicism. I'm curious as to whether there was any room in your experience coming out. I mean, did you grow up in a Catholic household? I I grew up in a like mixed faith household actually, but I did end up going to Catholic school. I was Catholic Mm -hmm. middle school. I was an altar boy. Um, Me too. Oh. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I can't tell you that I have awful memories, but I definitely don't necessarily have good ones either. It was just like, it, cause it was not a choice. It's like, here, oh, you're the eldest, uh, in this group. <laughs> you're going to be the altar boy for math. I'm like, what? I mean, I didn't want to participate in anything. I was just lazy. I was like, I don't want to do that. Um, but, but I think, you know, I, I think, I think your point is, is, is certainly that like, 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 like kind of like that Latino Catholicism particularly in the Caribbean, um, is very different. And, you know, um, and I think this, you know, it connects so much back to, like, Walter's story. You know, in um, in the Caribbean uh, and in a lot of places, uh, when when uh, the Spanish or Catholic from wherever came and, like, imposed this as the rule of the law, a lot of natives kept their own faith system um, and used kind of Catholicism as a, as a decoy. So, you know, in particular in, 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 uh, in the Caribbean where you have like Santeria and even uh, from the Voodoo or Candomblé in Brazil, you know, all of those kind of, um, all of those gods had a, they would use a, a, a Catholic decoy. So Santa Barbara, uh, was St. Barbara was also like uh, Ochun or Obatala, or, or sorry, Santa Barbara was Chango before any of my Cuban Americans really criticized me after hearing me getting it wrong. Uh, Santa Barbara was also Chango. So there's this kind of blending of like Catholicism and indigenous uh, faiths, faiths into one. Um, and I think that that, um, I think that that kind of opened up the sense of like alternate 
spirituality and alternate faith for, for folks because it was so prevalent. Um, and I think it's worth saying that also, like, you know, um, that mysticism is really described to indigenous people and people of color because, um, you know, a lot of these African religions, which is the base of Santeria, they were having to use um, uh, Catholicism as this decoy in order to practice their own faith. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, those are kind of the shoulders that folks like Walter stand upon because um, this kind of mysticism that we see throughout Latin America um came from indigenous people and people of color. And so, you know, I think that Walter was also able, because of the privilege of his light skin, was able to go even further, despite being queer, um, was able to go further than if a person of color would have uh, embraced that kind of mysticism. Um, right. But it's, that it's makes kind of this, yeah. it's, this, it's this melange, uh, uh, you know, in, in the culture of like, yeah, uh, sure, we're Catholic and we go to church on Saturday. No, we don't believe in the occult, but maybe just in case <laughs> we're going to tune in and see what Walter has to say. Yeah, absolutely. I, I describe well, I mean, I describe him as like an insurance policy. Like my grandmother, <laughs> sure. yeah, like my grandparents would <laughs> sure. watch and they're like, oh, and they were like, you know, they're like yeah, leaning exactly. to listen, turn their heads up. Oh, we don't, you know, we don't believe, we don't believe in this. But we're here, we are watching every afternoon religiously. That's, so That's really funny. Yeah, you know, I mean, actually, again, this is just like my personal anecdotal experience. But I, I also would even say actual like Italian Catholicism has some of that mysticism in it. There are, you know, there are, there are mystic saints like that is part of Catholicism. I'll tell you where that's not part of Catholicism, which is in the United States amongst white people. Like right. I think, and this is relevant because right now as we're talking, I don't, I don't know exactly when this episode will come out. Um, Amy Coney Barrett is has just been announced as the Supreme Court nominee. And she's this super conservative Catholic white woman. And that version of Catholicism, which I think again, white supremacy has created this idea that that's Catholicism, like what she's doing is Catholicism. But that is a very narrow um, view of Catholicism that specifically works in this country in concert with with patriarchy. Like it's, it's beautiful how perfectly American it is because it works so well here. Right. And, and only here. <laughs> yes. It's like not necessarily, like that's not how, you know, it, like as 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 wild as the sort of papist as as wild as the papacy is you know italy itself is sort of a matriarchal culture like it but also matriarchal culture that's married with um machismo like we we have that in common too of i think of and growing up in a super italian household and sort of what you're talking about about um expectations of gender like the grandmothers that I grew up around, like those were the heads of the family, not the grandfathers. But that being said, like the strict expectations of men, there were very narrow expectations of men, which were, which was like this utter strength, but also, um, emotional range. Like I grew up around men who had a lot of emotional range and the women who who didn't necessarily have emotional range because they were the leaders of the household. So it's like a very, everybody's still in boxes that are very tight, but it's different than I think um, maybe we would talk about it. And here I, I heard it a little bit in the um, sort of the way that grandmothers came into over and over again. People were talking about grandmothers in your film and that's what you're talking about too. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, gra- you know, abuelas, abuelas, the nonas, uh, for they they are like the center, and, I, and maybe it's because they're um the nurturing center, uh, but also in many ways most involved with the grandkids. Like, mm-hmm. um, a little, you know, like my grandfather, who I loved to death, was uh, you know, he was wonderful, but my grandmother was the one that picked us up after you know took us picked us up in the morning and took us to school and picked us up from school and stayed with us until our parents got home. Um, and so it was kind of a different dynamic in that sense. Um, and I think it has to do with a lot of, you know, what I think are really outdated, uh, gender rules, um, that hopefully shift. Uh, but I think that's a hundred percent, uh, I think that's a hundred percent true. And there's a certainly a similarity to that and how that intersects with, you know, machista culture and like what decisions 
who makes the decisions or what those decisions are. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think a lot about, you know, how, you know, how how much progress we've made, and particularly in Latin America, and how much more we have to go. Because, you know, we spent two and a half years in Puerto Rico making mucho, mucho more. And, um, and you certainly can see, like, the cultural progress in some senses of uh, more equitable uh, gender roles. But you also see still see intense homophobia, for example. You know, while we were shooting Mucho Mucho More, there was a, a young trap artist that was murdered for being gay in Puerto Rico. And it, it's, you know, it's always a little shocking um, when you are confronted with reality um, in the midst of what seems like uh, such progress. Well, what about for yourself? You know, I as as you were getting to know yourself more and thinking about how you would express your gender or your even visually how you look, you know, what was that experience like for you? You know, it was it was a little complicated for a couple of reasons. One is uh I think because I'm the child of immigrants, I'm first generation American. My my mother's family uh, is from Cuba. My mother uh, immigrated when she was 16 years old. My father's family is from Lebanon. He immigrated when he was 20. Um, so there's just these kind of conservative expectations of you know how you're to conduct how you're to conduct yourself and what you are to become, um, and that's a really important part of it because it was like, well, we went through all this shit. So that you could become a doctor or a lawyer, which one is it going to be? Uh, so, like a filmmaker, that's like you know, that's the bullshit. Answer. A filmmaker <laughs> making this film, also. right? Exactly. A, a queer filmmaker, uh, like yeah, no, that was that was not an option. I remember saying, I mean, I remember saying, I want to become a filmmaker, and they're like, "How are you going to make any money?" I mean, it wasn't like that supportive, you know. Oh, uh, of course, it's a great idea. You could do anything you want. You're like, no. You got to go, you're smart and we work hard. So you become a doctor lawyer. So that, you know, there's that pressure that comes with that. I was also a fat kid um, and a slightly effeminate kid. Um, and you kind of combine all three of those things. And it's like this identity crisis as a child growing up, which is, by the way, a really shitty way to grow up for a kid. I mean, I did not have the worst experience, but when you look back, you're like, oh man, I was dealing with like, I was being awkward for being like the fat kid in school who was like, you know, could not kick you know, couldn't play kickball. Um, the kind of, you know, I, I, I literally have a lisp. <laughs> like, straight out of central casting, right? <laughs> I have a lisp. Uh, slightly effeminate. And my parents have this expectation that I'm going to become a doctor or a lawyer and, you know, save the world to make all of that what they went through um, worth it. And so, I, you know, it, it, it was difficult. Um, <laughs> I think, thankfully, I've always had a little bit of a, a, a rebellious nature, uh, not for like the first 12 years. I was like the really good kid who didn't say a bad word. And then like, you know, 12 and a half came and I said all of them all the time. And like, I was like, <laughs> you know, this, what the hell oh are these god. notions? <laughs> you oh, know? My god. Um, oh my God. And, I, but I think that finding that journey, uh, is taking a while. You know, I, I literally, I just turned 40 last week. And, um, so I've been thinking a lot about like what that has been and like how comfortable I am in my skin now as opposed to, 10 years ago or 20 years ago um, or 30 years ago. I think it's just like, you know, I'm so kind of in awe of like this young generation that is um, really has a sense of ownership of who they are and who they want to be and how they want to express that. And um, I think for people my age, it was kind of on the cusp. You had some people who were able to do it very early. And for a lot of us, it was a journey. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's still a journey. I think I'm still on that journey. Um, I think mean, I love myself. I'm really happy. Um, but it, you know, it, it took some while and, you know, you, you kind of, you never, you never lose that kind of that baggage that comes along with you, whether it's, whether it's ba- baggage or experience or memories that kind of always informs who you are. And, um, I hope that for me, I hope it's made me a little bit more empathetic, uh, to people I encounter. Um, I can't say that that's always been the case, though. <laughs> I think, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know. I, I think of the two of us as like, because I felt like such a goon in my body when I was a kid. I mean, God, c- can just visualize the two of us. We're altar servers together. We have the long, like, weird sack dresses on. Right. With like a rope belt. I mean, God bless it. That's 
That's just truly, my heart is sent. The most um, unflattering outfit ever. Meanwhile, the priest has like layers and ropes yes. and a splash of color and, and yes, somebody exactly. walking around with incense. And I'm like, why am I wearing a white sack? Oh, God, <laughs> that is so funny. It's Not so good real. for a fat body white, by the way. <laughs> Let me tell you. so fun. It's very real. It's very real. You know, what I sometimes wonder with, um, like, because I, I guess I always, I mean, maybe, maybe there is, Maybe there is like real progress being made and like things will, you know, but I, I tend to, it's like in my, so we're not, we're not such a different age. I'm going to be 39 in next month. And, um, I think about progress as like, um, well, I saw Alicia Garza talking about this recently, who's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. And she was talking mm-hmm. about progress being more like a spiral where it's like, it's not a line, you know, you you realize you're in a different spot, but it's like a three-dimensional spot and you're living the same cycles. And sometimes when I think about younger folks who are having this more actualized experience, I wonder if what they will come up against is the idea that there are systemic issues that are individual, um, that that no matter how we come to love ourselves, we will still run up against. Like, because for me, I feel like I was, steeped in like everything is systemic like like you know wear your hair this way date this person and be this way and now if that's a little bit more relaxed i um i wonder if like for a younger generation what will happen is that there's this joy and freedom in being younger and then you like enter the workforce and you realize actually does kind of matter if you have a lisp or a butch haircut because the mainstream culture has not necessarily moved that far. I'm curious to see what happens because that's that's sometimes what I have seen from folks who like were raised at a different time in the fight for queer liberation is that there's like a we can do whatever we want and I'm and I'm curious to find out if that bears fruit like if that ends up being true. Because where I have intersected with systems, you know, like jobs, you know, I, I, I still find that I am paid less. You know, it, it's, it's like, congrats. It's so amazing that we have all these, this ability to love ourselves. And that doesn't necessarily translate to, um, you know, who's the president. So I'm, I'm curious as to see like how that flows with the next generation. Totally. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's thrilling and exciting that like, um, there are broader, like there are larger communities of acceptance now for like young, um, young queer folks um, who are able to kind of, you know, find your tribe in a way that's not necessarily like secretive as it once was. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like at one point you're going to enter, you know, you have to intersect with this kind of the world at large, which is still, still very patriarchal, still very buttoned up, um, and it it can be a really kind of harsh reality. Um, I mean, and listen, I, I'm all about like, we got to let's, you know, honor the progress we've made. I mean, it's 2020. I made a, a film about a queer Latino yes. Latinx astrologer. And it's, yes. you know, been very successful and beloved. And that was unthinkable even 10 or 20 years ago. So there's certainly some progress. But yeah, it's going to it's going to be really interesting um, as it goes along. And then our like. Are you and I are going to be like, you know, the grumpy old people like, let me tell you when I, I mean, was, like, I, uh, you know, I am grumpy now. So like, I hope, I hope to retain my grump. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I'm really curious to find out like if just, um, if loving yourself sooner is enough. Like that's my kind of question. Is that yeah. enough to really shift culture? And I, I don't think we know yet. And I'm like super curious to find out the answer to that. Um, But in your, have your folks seen this film? So, yeah. So uh, my mom has seen the film and my brothers have seen the film. My dad passed away a few years ago. Uh, My grandmother has not seen the film. And that is a result of her being 
95 and not having Netflix. Uh, so, so I very much have to figure out how to get a like subtitled DVD and go and show it to her. It's yes. also been like she's locked up in like during the pandemic and we've seen I've seen her like twice. So absolutely. But I'm totally gonna make the pilgrimage to show it to her. Um but you know, even the concept of me being a filmmaker <laughs> is very weird to her. She's like, Oh, I what what is that? What what do you do? You know, um when <laughs> I, there's such a disconnect that like I uh, one of my favorite stories of like this like being myself as an adult, uh when I'm not making films, I run an indie um uh, an indie cinema in Miami called O Cinema. And when we opened after first few years, I was really excited and it was like in the newspaper and everything. And we probably opened for like three years at this point. And my dad had physically come to the space. And just one day he turns to me and goes, what do y'all do? You show adult movies? And I'm like, no, no. What? Why are you not paying attention? No. <laughs> I mean, it's like, and I, so I've kind of given up trying to explain to my mom or my grandmother what it is. I'm like, listen, I'm eating. That's the only thing you really got to worry about. Or just walk through that door. I mean, if your folks are, if they've already, if they've already accepted that you're an adult filmmaker, go get that, you know, go get that money. Like, that's, that's, right. If that's already, <laughs> that's right. That's right. If that's already fine. Then... <laughs> yeah. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! So let's talk about the, the cinema that you run and what is happening with that right now. Yeah, so... Um... It's, uh, you know, we closed on March 12th. Uh, obviously, it's this huge shift in uh, in the world we're living, um, to say the least. Um, uh, but, you know, it's it's kind of, uh, in that sense, it's been similar to, like, my filmmaking journey. It was uh, my co-director, Vivian Martell, and I, uh, we opened O Cinema because, like, there wasn't a space showing the kind of films that were uh, that we wanted to be seen like something that was pluralistic in its view and representational of um this kind of eclectic community that is miami um and it was like an opportunity to like create community uh which is a really big thing um for me and for vivian as well um and so it's been a little difficult today because everything is like nobody can physically come uh to the theater uh, although i live in florida uh, which I feel like that says everything. And we just heard the governor has basically reopened the entire state, uh, oh, wow. which is mm-hmm. horrifying. Um, so I don't know when we'll be gathering in person again and showing movies to people. We've been able to do it virtually, which is great. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, the power of film to bring people together is pretty uh, amazing. And so I'm at least glad that we're able to do that virtually just like with Mucho Mucho More and, and the last resort before. And I'm really glad that at least people, whether it's in their homes and talking to one another or coming together personally, are able to kind of experience uh, these stories. But yeah, I can't wait to be able to gather in a room with people safely. Are, are you able to support the theater financially with these virtual screenings? No. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, if How is that on- going? Yeah, if we only had to rely on the virtual screenings, uh, it would be... Um, we would be closed by now. I mean, honestly, thankfully, thanks to some relief dollars, we are a nonprofit. So thanks to relief dollars from the city and uh, the county and some of the federal relief dollars, like, we've been able to like eke by. And uh, and uh, here's to hoping that those keep coming because, um, I mean, cultural organizations, we're seeing it already. I mean, cultural organizations are disappearing and, uh, you know, we've been at it for a decade and I hope that we can be at it for several more. Um, but it's, it's just, you know, it's a really, it's an uncertain time. I think like, uh, I think the one thing that's come out of this COVID for all of us is just having to become comfortable with uncertainty. 
and uh, and it's no different for us at Ocinema. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Well, for for me, um, you know, because my primary job is is a stand up. I have done a couple shows, and I'm about to teach a stand up class that are paired with physical spaces, like uh, one in Chicago and then one here in LA where I usually work that's called dynasty typewriter, you know, physical spaces that where they can't make their money anymore. And, um, part of the reason that that feels so important to me is that like, I'm not actually in this alone. I need, I do need a place to work eventually. And, um, it's been great to be able to partner with, with those places. And like, I've been able to make enough money just with people donate donating when I'm doing a zoom show to make like these don- donations that were substantial enough to be the essentially what they would have made on a sold out show, which has been great. Awesome. Um, but I, I can do that for one <laughs> place. Right. So I am very curious to see, I mean, my neighborhood is already changing the things that are you know, available for rent that were people's businesses. And um, I just feel, I feel like, I still feel like the sort of national mood, some of this I think has to do with the president, but I, I still feel like the national mood is like this idea of open back up, like just open back up, like it'll like just open back up, everything will be fine. And I think that we haven't even seen what's, we haven't yet seen what's already happened. Like it, like we don't, like it's our, many things have already happened that, um, because stuff is still closed or then when it started to intersect with Black Lives Matter and then businesses here are, the windows are boarded up, but for various reasons. So I'm very, um, I'm very curious to see how art will proceed through this because I do think this is a time when sort of many people are like laying fallow and great art will come from this. But what happens when there's great art and, you know, the places that we used to show it or the places that we used to see it don't look the same or don't exist or, or they open up again, but like potentially not at full capacity or in Florida, maybe at full capacity. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> but then you as a business owner have to make that decision, which is also wild. Yeah. Like for you, that you are in charge of people's health is wild to think about. So, like, is I that mean, is that what you're being instructed to do? By the, you, like, you know, open? we get, I mean, so we technically can open um, at reduced capacity. We have, uh, we have made the decision not to for some time. What uh, a wild choice to I, make I know. as like a theater owner. Like, I just think it's like, that's not. Anyway. I mean, listen, it's it's not <laughs> in, in, in one way. It's not the wise decision to make because even pennies on the dollar would probably help at this point. But right. in, in another way, I think before I'm a theater owner, I'm like, we're human beings and we're community yeah. members and citizens. And right. the reason we do the, we're doing this theater, which is not a lucrative thing to begin with. The reason we do it is because we love our community. We love film. And we want people to come together. Why would we ever put people in harm's way if we can avoid it? So, I mean, we're not doing it, you know, at, at, right now. And, and we're having, you know, we have a little bit of the luxury to wait some time that could change. I mean, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what could right. happen. And, and and the fact, you know, we're starting to have real conversations about what it will look like when we reopen in some fashion. Um, and um, that's a lot to think about, you know, because you, you think like, how do you make, you know, how do you make it safe for someone? Um, and like, I ran an art theater, like a lot of our patrons are like, you know, over the age of 55. <laughs> you know, That's one thing. Another thing that I think about a lot in my own case, and I would imagine it's true for you, is like, well... Fortunately and unfortunately for me, I already like run a brand that cares about social justice and people's life. Like that's the point of right. why I do shows is to bring community together, which is what you were talking about too. And so it's very funny because the the wildly like cynical edge to this is that you know companies that don't espouse any morality actually are like in a better position than companies that do like it's like oh. a, a a wild side effect 
of the way this country has been dealing with this is like, you do have a different responsibility than like the IMAX down the street. And that is, that's a totally strange thing to navigate. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's, 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 you know, we're not, we're thankfully not Walmart. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're thankfully not Walmart. We, we have to care because we always have, and we've said we do. And, uh, so you have to, you know, you have to kind of prove it. And, uh, yeah, it's a weird, weird world, Cameron. We're living it in sure like, is. screwed up, crazy ass times. And, but hell, I mean, as long as we could try to find a way to, to make it work or, or if not make it work, it at least to like get through the day, been. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, it sounds like you have been, which is, you know, to be really applauded what did you when did this when was it actually released like uh so we uh we premiered at sundance in january of 2020 and then uh we launched on netflix on in july of 2020 so it's only been it's not even been six months yet that we've been out um yeah which is crazy but it's great it's great hearing from people and stuff it's been like so much fun i bet i bet i mean when when it are you hearing from people in your in your life in your past? Netflix is such a large. Yeah, totally. Uh, we, I mean, so there's like there's a bunch of like random messages from like one from like the folks you'd expect. So like messages from Latino communities in the U.S. and from Latin America, and then like you know here's a I'll get like a, a, a an Instagram message from somebody in Sweden and somebody in Italy and like Taiwan, all these far off places. Uh, and those are really exciting. And then, of course, there's always the people who you've not heard from in like 10 years who send the message and want to chat. I'm like, I haven't wanted to chat with you in 10 years. What makes you think now that I've done something <laughs> that you're, you know, <laughs> that I want to talk to you now? Those are always weird, but they're like, I can laugh at that now because I'm like, oh, come on, really? Don't be so, don't be so blatant. Like, you're not, you're not actually excited for me. <laughs> You just can now relate to something. Um, it's really, it's, it's been funny, but it's been overwhelmingly positive and great. And I mean, just like just yesterday, somebody posted on Instagram a photo of like three generations of women in their family gathering to watch the movie oh, in like cool. Colombia. And I was like, I got super emotional with that. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Like you can bring different people together. Um, and I, and I also just kind of love that people are celebrating an outsider, a weirdo. I mean, like my films have always yeah. focused on like outsiders, people who live on the fringe of society. So the fact that um, that we can kind of celebrate somebody who did that in masterfully and and kind of penetrated the the mainstream in a way is, uh, yeah, it's, it gets me super stoked. Well, I'm also super. I mean, I'm, I have to say, I'm really happy for you that you've had that experience, especially during this time, and especially because. I would imagine it's stressful with, you know, the theater that you run and it, that you're just also a human living in this world. This is a really tough time. And what an amazing time to be able to hear from people really far away and be in people's homes. You know, like that's that's amazing. I'm so happy for you that you've gotten that. Thank you. Right now. Like it's, what a what what amazing timing. I mean, I think, you know, as, as a comedian, I think you would know, like, like there's the fact that you can make people happy is like what a great privilege and in this particular time not just with the pandemic with like living in this crazy ass country with this crazy ass president um and everything's going on like the fact that you're even able to all like and i say us and really it's walter he's like we're the vehicle for sharing him the fact that he's been able to make people happy and maybe forget about shit for a little bit i mean that's um that's like that's the greatest gift I could have gotten throughout this all. And I'm glad that people are like, I'm glad that people are digging the film and, and that they're, that they're getting to get a little bit of that Walter magic. We, we can all use some. Yeah. That's how I felt watching it. I was watching it feeling like, Oh, okay. Right. There things exist. Things in the world exist. There are people, you know, like that's something you still need to be reminded of. in 2020. People are real. Yeah. yeah. I, can, I can see them someday again. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And before I send you back into your day, I'm just looking for you to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you can be who you are today. It's hard to pin it to just one person, but you know, I think that uh, I think as we've been talking about it, you know, uh, Walter Mercado really was such an, a huge impact in my life in ways that I didn't realize it when I was a kid, but that I do now, and. Um, he was my queero. You know, he 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 never um, 
he never used queer as a, a description for himself. He he never fully owned that, but he was always himself and he was always proud of being himself. And, you know, I think at this point in my life, I realized how impactful that was as a, as a kid, seeing someone so visibly different and so proud of being themselves. And um, it made this fat, awkward child of immigrant ex uh, uh, ex altar boy feel a little different feel like he could take on the world and uh, and so I'm really grateful for him and for being able to share his uh, his story and for him having an impact on me did you get a chance to come out to him I did I did uh, you know uh, if you've seen the film you know that we talk about Walter's sexuality and we we wanted Walter to talk about his sexuality in a more explicit way, which is not something that was easy. I, um, and it was frustrating because, uh, you know, he had 50 years of like rehearsed answers for every question and we mm-hmm. really had to push him and wear him down to kind of get to the truth of it all. And at one day I was really frustrated and I said, look, can we talk in your, in your room? And I made sure that he knew that there was no camera, no mics. And I left my phone on. I'm like, I need to tell you how important you were to me. And because of you that I, I felt like I could be queer. I could be gay and be successful and be happy because I saw you and I recognized in you something different that I saw in myself. And it's incredibly important. And I, and I, I was inspired by it and I want other people to be inspired by it. And, you know, and he heard it and he appreciated it. And he, I would say, acknowledged what I said. And he said, you know, I've just never felt like I needed to talk about my sexuality. And so it was a bittersweet conversation because I felt like I was able to share with him what a huge influence he was on me. Um, but for whatever reasons, he was still kind of not able to be, share who he, you know, who I think he truly was with everyone else. So, um, but we heard from a lot of queer folks and a lot of young queer folks Who've, who've gotten his energy in the film, uh, that that's come across as queer energy. And, um, and hey, I think that that's, that's pretty great. It is. It also is, I mean, I get that maybe, maybe his, you know, if he had been able, if he had been able to say to you in that moment or in the film, like, yes, here's what it's been like, you know, here's what I do, here's who I've been with. Like, I get that that might have felt for you like a huge relief, like a gift that you, that you or, or that me as a viewer, you know, to feel like I could get to know an elder and like really see what, what, what was it like? You know, who, like, tell me the detail. Where did you go? Like, you know, I have those questions. And it's funny because as you tell that story, it's like, there is, yeah, there's, you know, you didn't get to receive that gift and I didn't get to receive that gift watching that film. Like I got to receive his presence, which is also a gift, but not the gift of the sort of truth. It's like when I, it's like when I re- like, like I saw the movie Carol and then I read The Price of Salt, but then I read about Patricia, Patricia Highsmith's life, the the writer of that book. And like, she's not alive, but I just, the idea that like, oh, this is actually like, this is somebody of the time. Like, I get that this movie just came out and then it was directed by Todd Haynes, but like, and that the screenwriter that, that it was screenwritten by, you know, not by Tr- Patricia Hartsmith, but this is somebody who wrote this text who was there and like who like that's like such a gift to us. But I guess I'm just saying all this because it's actually like really amazing that you gave him the gift of knowing you. Because I'm imagining if he was that guarded and had that many canned answers sorry just dropping things um that like you're being able to be candid with him and i know because he passed like he's no longer with us i just think that that's that would have been really beautiful i'm imagining for that person to receive that even if they couldn't return it and uh for you talking about all the things that he gave you it's it feels like like, I'm happy for you that you might have gotten to do a trade where you're like, okay, well, you gave me all this stuff. You're not giving me this one thing that I like really wish I had, which is like a full explanation, but I can give you my explanation. I think that's pretty cool. I, I And I think, you know, where I've come out on it on the other end of it now, after like being able to reflect is that I think that 
maybe Walter couldn't put it into words because of, you know, the generation he came from, the era, the place. But, you know, he did give me and give all of us that because every day that he came on our television screens, he was who he was authentically, regardless of whatever ridicule or mockery, regardless of being the only person that we knew that looked like that. He showed us who he was and he was authentic to himself. And his message was one of like, live your life loving one another and loving yourself. And love is the most important thing in the end of the world. Everything else is uh, it's just a barrier that we're creating. Live your life with love and everything will be great. And so I guess in that way, you know, as I reflect on it, I think that like that was his coming out in a way that maybe didn't it didn't look or sound the way I wanted it to be, but it was the way he needed it to be. And uh and really and now I'm just grateful for that. Yeah, that's beautiful. I really love this conversation. Thank you for your time and thank you for this film. Thanks, Cameron. I like cried my eyes out. <laughs> Whoever knew? I didn't know that when I grew up, all I wanted to do was make people cry because. Oh, but like <laughs> crying right now is to move from numb fear and dread to any other emotion. What a gift! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going on my resume. I can make you cry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. it's, it's it's been it's been a, a delight, and thank you for uh, thank you for all the laughs and all the great conversations. Not not just this one, but all the ones I've been listening to now for a little bit. So, oh, thank so you. so appreciative. Um, um, and- mucho amor. Yeah, mucho amor. <laughs>